Exodus chapter 32. When you get your hands on a Bible, Exodus chapter 32 this morning. You may want to fasten your Bible belts. Get comfortable, get your Bibles open, and let's settle in this morning. I want to share some things with you. This was a a study that was written and ready for Wednesday night. And yet, as I told those who are here, our our Bible students on Wednesday night, everybody needs to hear this one. Everybody needs to be in this and understand this. This is one of the most critical issues that faces Christianity today. And lo and behold, we discover it in Exodus chapter 32 and the story of the golden calf, beginning in verse 1. Now, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people assembled about Aaron and said to him, Come, let us make a God who will go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Well, Aaron said to them, Tear off the gold rings which are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. And then all the people tore off the gold rings which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. He took this from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made it into a molten calf. And they said, This is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Now when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation. He said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. So the next day they rose early and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and to drink and rose up to play. Amazing. It was just 40 days earlier that the people trembled at the base of the mountain, scared out of their wits at the voice of God. And he spoke those Ten Commandments. And now, 40 days later, with Moses' absence, the people are saying, where is he? I don't know. Well, we need a God. We need a system. We need a belief. We need something to go before us, or all the nations are going to consume us. Aaron, make us a God. And I want you to understand that as we make our way through the Bible, every verse matters. But there are certain stories that are so full of powerful truth, as this one, that we need to pause and take a close look. This one raises up above other chapters as a way for us to understand something critical, a contrast that you may be somewhat aware of, but I, I think it's brought out so clearly in this chapter we want to take some time to look at it. There are a couple of contrasts you'll see. The most obvious one is the contrast between Aaron and Moses. Moses, I think, was the second greatest leader the world has ever seen. The first, of course, being Jesus. Moses was a powerful man. Moses spoke to God. Moses, as you will see in this chapter, changed God's mind. Moses commanded a people some three million strong. This was a great leader. Moses had the commandments. Aaron had a cow. (laughs) Moses was a man of God. Aaron was a man of the people. Moses prayed, Aaron pulled. He was into focus groups. Paid attention to what the people wanted. Moses feared the Lord. Aaron feared man. There's a great contrast between these two. Proverbs 29-25 tells us the fear of man brings a snare. Proverbs chapter 1 verse 7 tells us the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. So your choice. You can fear man and be ensnared by that fear. Or you can fear the Lord and you can begin to understand what this world is about. What our lives are about. Where we're headed. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. A clear contrast here between Aaron and Moses. And you're going to see this throughout the whole chapter. How both of them respond, react, deal with the situation that comes before them. 
But there's a greater contrast that I want you to see and understand this morning. For you see, just after a few short months in the wilderness, the Israelites contracted, as a people, a serious disease. You know what I'm talking about? They got mad cow disease. They just couldn't let go of their sacred cows. They just... They couldn't do that. Again, we need to steer clear of jokes like those. So, I mean, you know, I'm glad you're all on time this morning. No one had to hoof it to get here. <laughs> they do get worse, isn't it great? <laughs> Would you like me to move on? No, I, I was going to say, you know, it, I mean, I'm the one up here. You know, it's not like I'm hiding out or anything. I'm... So the other great contrast is between Rick's jokes and true humor. No, the great contrast that I want you to be aware of and see this morning is so clear. And it's amazing. When, when, I, when I really am in a study like this, it's incredible how God brings these things up all week long. How the very topic that, that He leads me to is discussed all over the place. Questions come up. Phone calls come in. Just last night I was talking with, with Larry Sickles and Harlan and a few others and Larry said something and he had no idea what we were going to talk about today but he said something that was such a great quote I have to share it with you he said now this is either Oswald Chambers or Dietrich Bonhoeffer I'm not sure which one so we're just going to say it's Larry Stickles now he did write down on a piece of paper the exact quote went home last night I suppose and, and spent hours probably looking for this in my utmost for his highest Oswald Chambers and he found the quote but it's not as good as Larry's okay so we're going to listen to the voice of this morning because this is a great quote. One of the great theologians of our day. He said, and listen closely to this because this is the essence, this is the contrast, this is what I want you to see this morning as we study. The most difficult thing to do is to move from my belief system to intimacy with the Father. How many of us have a belief system and in reality, how many of us are concerned about our belief system? How many of us go to church looking for my belief system to be fulfilled, to, to be okay with that church? Some have a belief system, but others have intimacy with God. Is this feeding back a little bit to you guys? Hank, if you just shut off all the other mics, just mute them all, I think that will take care of it. Maybe if I don't talk so loud, I don't know. The difference between, gang, religion, which is a belief system, and relationship, which is intimacy with God. That's what we desire. That's what we're looking for. And the way to get it, by the way, is not to get away from Scripture out on a mountaintop and just hmm and ha and, and get with the... The way to get it is to seek Him in His Word, to seek Him in prayer, and if we do so, we will find Him. Let's pray before we get into this. Father in Heaven, this morning I pray that You will illuminate our eyes to see what You have to bring to us. I pray that Your Word, Father, will challenge us and motivate us and move us. That we will begin to shake off the shackles of belief systems, of theology, of religion, and seek, Father, to be in relationship with You. And I believe, Father, this is why we're here. It's why we're walking on this planet. 
so that we can come to that place of intimacy and so be with you forever. Lord, this is the desire of my heart, and I pray this for every person here this morning, those who are long-time believers, long-time walkers with you, and those who may be on the very front edge just asking who you are, Lord, what you have to do with them. Father, show us intimacy. In Jesus' name, amen. Contrast again is between religion and relationship And be careful because religion is the sacred cow That kills It kills Verse 1 Looking again at chapter 32 Verse 1 tells us When the people saw That Moses delayed to come down from the mountain The people assembled about Aaron And said to him Come make us a God who will go before us As for this Moses The man who brought us up from the land of Egypt We do not know what has become of him Some things you may want to jot down about religion Just to get a clear picture of it From the people of Israel Number one, religion centers on the flesh. Religion centers on the flesh. It tends to be about a person rather than about the Lord. The people here completely miss who it was that brought them up from the land of Egypt. And my friends, it was not Moses. Moses was not the leader, not the great guy who brought them out of Egypt, who saved them. It was the Lord. And we are often stunned when we read this story because we look back and go, how could they have missed that? The Red Sea, God's voice, all of the miracles of feeding the manna, the quail, everything that had happened so far, they should have known it had nothing to do with Moses and everything to, to do with God, the Lord. But we like flesh and blood. We do. We're drawn to tangible representation. So the people shouted, Aaron, Aaron, he's our man. I hope he can do it. Because Moses said, can't. He's gone. Where is he? Where's the guy who supposedly led us up? Folks, Moses didn't lead you up. It was the Lord. Let me reiterate something we've talked about many times in the bridge. Just because someone is a pastor doesn't mean he's teaching you the truth. Myself included. Why is it that we always pass out Bibles and get them open? Because you need to see the truth for yourselves and not trust any man. And there are too many men in the church today, pastors, who people look at and say, oh, he's a pastor, so he must be telling you the truth. Not so. Aaron was a pastor. Aaron was left in charge of the people. Aaron is with the people, and they look to him, a man who will eventually be the high priest, who's been with Moses all the way, and they say, Aaron, help us out here, buddy. What do we do? And he misled the people. He was misled by the people. It was a rather dysfunctional relationship there. How often do people do this? Religiously center on the flesh. Paul spoke to the Galatian church about this. He said in Galatians chapter 3 verse 1, You foolish Galatians! Who has bewitched you? Before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified, this is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law, belief system, religion? Or did you receive the Spirit by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun with the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Having begun with the Lord, drawn out of Egypt, are you people of Israel now going to be perfected by a cow, by a man, by the flesh? Why do we seek the words of of another human being when we have the word of the eternal being? 
Why would we even go for advice unless the advice coming back to us has to do with the Word of God that is eternal, that is perfect, that is what we need? And yet we enjoy centering on the flesh. That's religion, folks. It's what religion does. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 1. Peter warns this. He says, There will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. Aaron was a man of the people, and that was the problem. He was a man of the people. It was the worst kind, again, of dysfunctional relationship. The people centering on the flesh, Aaron's flesh bearing the people, and around and around they went. But now the scene switches to Moses and the Lord on Mount Sinai. Skip down to verse 7. The Lord spoke to Moses. They're up on the mountain. All this is going on below. Moses doesn't know it, but God does. In verse 7 he says, Go down at once. For your people, whom you brought up from the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. Well, that's interesting. Listen again to God's words. Do you hear what he's saying? Go down at once for your people who you brought up from the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. What's God doing? What every parent does when they walk in the front door and find out one of their kids is messed up. What has your son done today? Back to the work of your daughter. Will you go upstairs and pay your son a visit and deal with him? God is distancing himself from the people. He's saying, hey, it's your people, Moses. I love this relationship that God and Moses has. It's a real relationship. And, and he lays this out before Moses. And God says, and this is the second thing about religion to pay attention to, religion is a corruption of the faith. It's a corruption of the faith. This is how God characterizes the problem. Your people have corrupted themselves. Now I want you to understand this. It's important. Look at verses 4 and 5 again. What happened? Uh, Aaron took the gold rings from their hand. He fashioned it with a graving tool and they made it into a molten calf. And they said, they said, not Aaron, the people said, This is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Now when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to who? To the Lord. Not to the calf. To the Lord. Well, he's just saying Lord referring to the calf, right? No, because the word is Jehovah. Tomorrow's going to be a feast to the Lord, to Yahweh, to Jehovah. We've made this calf and everybody's saying, hey, the calf brought us out. And Aaron goes, oh, okay, okay. So tomorrow's going to be a feast to the Lord. Some insight into the mind of Aaron. He is not abandoning the Lord. He's corrupting the way of the Lord. He hasn't given up on the Lord. He still knows the Lord is the Lord, but he's just come up with now a different symbol. Aaron's thinking, well, okay, a golden calf can be attractive. It can be powerful. It can be a relatable symbol, especially to the nations around. They see this golden calf going before us, and they're going to say, well, this is a relevant people. These guys are culturally relevant. Wow, the people of Israel are secret sensitive. They're doing what needs to be done so that we can relate to them. You know what I'm saying? Religion corrupts faith by attempting to make the church hip or current or relevant to the times. But listen, gang, God has always been seeker-sensitive. God has always had a word that is relevant to every culture of every time of every place. The Bible has always been relevant and is no less relevant today than it was back then. And it doesn't need our help to be relevant. 
God wants to save people. That's always been the deal with Him. And do we really think that in our generation we've come along and said, Hey, we've got a better way. I know we've been at this for 2,000 years, but we finally figured out this is the way to do it. And God's saying, How about this? How about you be relevant by sticking to my word? For all our slick marketing, gang, His Spirit and His Word are the reason why anyone comes to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ and nothing else. That's how you find Jesus. Why does it seem that that Christianity has slowed its impact on America? Because faith has been corrupted by religious spirit, by belief systems, by strategies, by marketing. God needs my help. He needs my help to develop this way. His way needs me to help it be current and and hip and relevant. And Proverbs 14.12 says, There is a way which seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. There are all kinds of ways that seem right, appear right. Look, as Aaron looked at the golden calf and constructed it, thought, okay, we're still going to worship the Lord, but we're just going to have this symbol for the Lord, and it's a corruption, and we still do it today by watering down the Word, by quenching the Spirit, by trading in God's sovereignty over man's strategies. That corrupts faith. Look at verses 8 and 9. God continued to speak to Moses, says, They have quickly turned aside from the way which I commanded them, they have made for themselves a molten calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed it to it and said, This is your God, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, they are an obstinate people. No one in my life ever used the word obstinate except for my father. <laughs> Who's here this morning? My mom and dad are here. Obstinate. Rick, will you quit being obstinate? And all my life, I go to my room, you know, in trouble, going, what does obstinate mean? I don't know what it means. I'm being obstinate. Apparently, I'm obstinate, but I don't know what it means. I finally found out what obstinate means. I'll tell you in just a minute. This god, this golden calf, was very likely the Egyptian god Apis. Apis. A young bull, very popular back in Egypt, but it wasn't Apis that they worshipped, not as far as Aaron was concerned. Again, it was simply a representation of God. It was religious corruption. Religious corruption. Exodus chapter 20, verse 4, the Lord had said 40 days prior to this, You shall not make for yourself an idol, or any likeness of what is in heaven above, or in the earth beneath, or in the water under the earth. And we studied this recently. You remember what God was saying? Don't make a representation of anything, because you cannot represent me with human things. You can't represent God. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 18, To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare with him? There's only one, by the way, who can be likened to God, and that's Jesus Christ. That's why he came in the flesh, so that we could see what God looked like. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 9. He's the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature, who upholds all things by the word of his power. But again, besides corruption, there's another religious issue going on here, and it's the people are obstinate. They're obstinate. Some of your translations say what this word means. It's kashé or ref. In the Hebrew it means stiff-necked. Stiff-necked. Religion, gang, cranes its neck to the former things. Religion cranes its neck. Why are they stiff-necked? Because they're still looking back. They're traveling this way, but they're looking this way. They're craning their neck to see the former things. Well, what do you mean? Acts chapter 7, verse 39. Our fathers were unwilling to be obedient to him, but repudiated him, and in their hearts turned back to Egypt. Back to the idols. Back to something familiar that they had known for 400 years along with their slavery. 
Religion cranes its neck to the former things. And we've said this before, I'll say it again, it's one thing to get the people out of Egypt. It's another thing to get Egypt out of the people. And this people is still full of Egypt. Psalm 106.19 says they made a calf in Horeb and worshipped a molten image. Thus they exchanged their glory for the image of a God that eats grass. They forgot God their Savior who had done great things in Egypt, wonders in the land of Ham, and awesome things by the sea. Now the language of this psalm strikes me as oddly familiar. Listen again. They exchanged their glory for an image. Well, Romans chapter 1 verse 22 tells us, professing to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man and of birds and of four-footed animals and crawling creatures. The psalmist says they exchanged their glory. Paul says in Romans 1, they exchanged God's glory and there's a connection. His glory is glory. Any glory that I might have in my life, any good thing that shines out of me, any wonders that might happen are from above. It's from the glory of God, not from the ability of Rick. Outside the Lord, anything we do, anything we accomplish or achieve is fuel for the fire, but His glory is glory. Which is why Christians want so badly to be filled up with the Lord. Because it's His glory that lasts. His glory that's real. Not mine. But again, an obstinate people, a stiff-necked people, crane their necks looking away from God to some other source of glory. Some other experience of feeling good about themselves. The glory days, we like that phrase. Maybe you were a sports hero in high school. Maybe you still are. Maybe you accomplished some great feat in your life. But mark this, my friends, the greatest glory is the glory to come. And it's a glory God wants to share with His people. But stiff-necked Israel had yet to enter the glorious land of promise. They slowed the process because they were craning their necks looking back. But God now offers Moses an interesting proposal. Look at verse 10. God says to Moses, Now let me alone, that my anger may burn against them, and that I may destroy them, and I will make of you a great nation. Guess what, Moses? I'm done with the seed of Abraham. I'm finished with the promise to Isaac. Forget Israel. I'm going to make you a great nation, Moses. How tempting is that? For the posterity of God's work on earth to come from Moses himself. Not just Moses as one man in the line, but Moses' seed, his sons, his daughters, his family line. God says, I'll work through you. I'm going to wipe out the obstinate people. Now here is the beginning of relationship. Listen, Moses argues back to God. Verse 11. Then Moses entreated the Lord his God and said, Oh Lord, why does your anger burn against your people? Well, Moses hadn't seen it yet. He hadn't seen the people. What? And I also love the way he turns it around. Why does your anger burn against your people, whom you brought out from the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? They're not my people, God. Don't put this off on me. I'm not going to deal with this. It. yours. You're the one who called me the burning bush. You're the one who sent me back. It's your people. And why does your anger burn against them? And Moses gives three great reasons here for God to change his mind. He says, first of all, these are your people, not mine. 
They're not my people. They're yours. I didn't do this. You did. You started this, Lord. It's your business. Verse 12, he goes on. He says, Why should the Egyptians speak, saying with evil intent, He brought them out to kill them on the mountains or to destroy them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and change your mind about doing harm to your people. Well, the first thing he said is they're your people. The second thing he said is this is your prestige on the line, God. You kill these people now, the Egyptians are going to have a heyday. They're going to be laughing about this. They're going to say, what's the deal with this God who would do this to his own people? Your people are on the line. Your prestige is on the line. And then he says, finally, God, your promise is on the line here. Verse 13, he says, remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by yourself. And say to them, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heavens. And all this land of which I have spoken, I will give to your descendants. And they shall inherit it forever. Your people, Lord, are on the line. Your prestige. By the way, I wish sometimes that I could be a little more aware of God's prestige in how I live my life. A little more aware of how I represent the Lord in the things that I do. John chapter 13, verse 35. Jesus says, By this, all men will know you're my disciples if you have love for one another. And John 15, 8. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Let my life be like a love song. Why? Just for you and the Lord know also so that people can see who the Lord is simply by how we love each other. But his promise was also on the line. Moses said, you swore to Abraham. You swore to Isaac. You swore to Israel. And if you don't keep that promise, why should anyone ever believe you to keep any promise? Which, by the way, is why biblical prophecy is so profound and so important. Because God keeps every promise He has ever made. And any promises that you read about in the Old Testament that seem at this point unfulfilled, let me just say, I can absolutely guarantee it, I will stake my eternal soul on this, they will be fulfilled. Because God doesn't break a promise. So what's going on here? Why does God actually say He's going to destroy the people? Well, it's interesting. Moses argues with God here, and he won. He won the argument with God. Look at verse 14. Verse 14 tells us, So the Lord changed His mind about the harm which He had said He would do to His people. The word is nakam, and it means repented. God repented. Houston, we have a problem. <laughs> Numbers chapter 23 verse 19 tells us God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should repent. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not make it good? What does it mean that God is repented? And why this whole scenario? If God knew he wasn't going to in the first place. What's going on here? Well, the obvious reading of this verse is that God was angry and Moses talked him down. God was hot. Moses was cool. Of course, remember, Moses is the one who wrote this. So it's somewhat from his recollection. But the challenge with all the scriptures is in its attempt to use human language to describe a God who is literally, as we tend to think, indescribable. You cannot truly describe God by human words. It's a challenge, and so the Bible does the best that human words can to describe the actions of God. And so this word repentance is the closest word the Hebrew writers had. He changed his mind, he turned, changed direction from what he told Moses he was going to do. But let me remind you that it was God who put into Moses' mind to pray in the first place. God is the one who inspired Moses to stand in the gap to get between him and the people. It was God who put this on Moses' heart. 
His ways are higher than our ways. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9. God says, my thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. But gang, listen. All true prayer originates with God. All prayer starts with the Father. And we think sometimes that we have to generate our prayers. It comes from God first. What are you talking about? Romans chapter 8 verse 27. He who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. When you go to pray to the Lord and you're praying in the Lord, you're praying in the will of the Lord. He's the one who's putting it on your heart, on your mind. He's the one who set Moses up. In a good way. He placed Moses in the right place at the right time to do what needed to be done. Do you actually think that God didn't know what was up with the people? That God had forgotten about his promise to Abraham? Do you actually think that he had forgotten about his prestige before all the people of Egypt or the surrounding nations? Do you think for a moment in his anger God just lost control? (coughs) Or is it more likely... That he had Moses right where he wanted him to stand in the gap for the people. Psalm 106.23 says, Therefore God said he would destroy them. Had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath from destroying them. Moses was the intercessor. Moses stood in the gap, but he stood in the gap because God put him there. God put him there. We need someone like Moses, by the way. We need an intercessor. Someone to stand in the gap between our sinful nature and the holiness of God. And in Jesus, we have him. 1 John 2.1 tells us, If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And by the way, you are also called to be intercessors as well. As Jesus intercedes for us before the Father, we're also called to intercede for others to the Lord. And some of you are here this morning because someone else here this morning was interceding for you. The Bridge Christian Fellowship has been here now coming up on two years in October. But the seed for this church was planted five years ago when people began to pray that God would bring a fellowship to this northern tip of Whidbey Island. That this church was born out of three years of prayer. And not three years of my prayer. For those three years, I was a clueless wonder. I didn't have any idea what was going to happen here. But there were others who were already praying. And those of you who came to the Lord at this fellowship in the last couple of years, Spence, thinking about you, Danny, what happened was people were interceding for you prior to you coming here. Intercessors. You may be praying right now that God's going to change someone's heart and not have any idea who that person is, but they're out there, and they're coming, and they're coming because you took the time to pray. And I think, and I I know God is going to bless those people who were in prayer for those three years prior to this church starting, because that prayer laid the foundation. That prayer called the attention of God to this island and to this area and has saved lives. Praise the Lord. Verse 15. Then Moses turned and went down. Are we going to do the whole chapter, Rick? You betcha. Verse 15. Then Moses turned and went down the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, tablets which were written on both sides, and they were written on one side and the other. Verse 16. This is awesome. The tablets were God's work. And the writing was God's writing engraved on the tablets. This was not something of man. God did the whole thing. 
Now when Joshua heard the sound of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there's a sound of war in the camp. Good old Joshua. Warrior Joshua. This is his role and will be his role coming up. And so when he hears the noise, he's thinking, time to go to battle. And Moses said, that's not the sound of the cry of triumph. Nor is it the sound of the cry of defeat. But the sound of singing I hear. And it came about that as soon as Moses came near the camp, that he saw the calf and the dancing, and Moses' anger burned. Now he understands why God was so upset. Because he's seeing with his own eyes what's going on. And he threw the tablets from his hands and shattered them at the foot of the mountain. Why not? The people were already breaking the law. Might as well break the law literally. He took the calf which they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it over the surface of the water and made the sons of Israel drink it. Deuteronomy 9.21 says, I took your sinful thing, Moses speaking, the calf which you had made and burned it with the fire and crushed it, grinding it to very small until it was as fine as dust. And I threw its dust into the brook that came down from the mountain. This was the first Kool-Aid, by the way. But there was nothing cool about it. And I want you to notice something about the leadership of Moses here. One man against three million. It's almost unthinkable that this one man could make the people drink this gold dust water. That he could actually have the authority, the power, the ability to call a whole people to repentance and force them to drink of their own sin. How could he do this? He is a powerful man. He did it because he feared the Lord and did not fear men. He had no fear of the people of Israel. He had just been up on the mountain with God. He knew where the power was. And so he rested in his faith with God and in his fear of the Lord. And that drove him to lead the way leadership should happen, by the way, in a church. By those who fear the Lord first and foremost. Leadership is concerned first and foremost with the fear of the Lord. Jesus said in Luke 12:4, I say to you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that have no more that they can do. Rather, I warn you whom to fear. Fear the one who after he has killed you has the authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. The fear of the Lord. Wait a minute, you're talking about religion versus relationship and how is relationship fear? I don't want to fear God, I want to love God. Absolutely. But you need to remember who God is. Not forget the awesome, mighty, eternal power that is the Lord's. I love my kids. And my kids love me. But there are lines of respect that are not crossed. There are places where they know that they don't go. With Dad, it's the fear of Rick. And it's a good fear. It's a healthy fear. Most of the time. But the ideal healthy fear is the fear of the Lord. Because he has the power, the ability, the wonder. He can balance all things out. And so Moses feared the Lord. By the way, he prefigures another one, the greatest leader in all history, who would also command such awe. Have you ever thought about how, in, and it's mentioned in Matthew 21, Mark 11, Luke 19, and John 2. Have you ever wondered how Jesus was able to walk into the temple and clear it out? One guy against a whole group of Jewish businessmen? How do you do that? This was a powerful man. Why? Because Jesus feared the Lord. Oh, not Jesus was the Lord. He is. He was. He did fear the Lord as well. The perfect example of a relationship with God. Well, now Moses turns to Aaron and we see one more picture of the religious spirit. Verse 21. 
Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you, that you have brought such great sin upon them? And Aaron said, Do not let the anger of my Lord burn. You know the people yourself, that they are prone to evil. <laughs> but they said to me, Make a God for us, who will go before us. For this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we did not know what had happened to him. Verse 24, So I said to them, Whoever has any gold, let them tear it off. And they came and gave it to me. And I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. <laughs> I mean, you don't have to add anything to it. That's hilarious. I just chucked the gold in the fire and said, there was a calf. What was I supposed to do? We worship it. Wow. This was out of my hands. You know, it's even more than this. Aaron is painting a picture of himself, not only as one who is non-complicit, and watch this, but also as someone who is really trying to detour the people from sinning at all. What do you mean? The whole earring thing. Earrings in that day, he told him to take off all the gold rings and bring them to me, and I'll, you know, he makes this great calf. But now while he's telling Moses, he is sure to mention that. Look again, he says it where it's in verse 24. They had just told me to make a God for them. In verse 24, I said, whoever has any gold, let him tear it off. What's he saying? He's saying, stop the idolatry. Get rid of your gold earrings, which in the day were a symbol of idol worship. And Aaron's bringing this up to Moses to say, see, what I was doing was trying to burn the idol. I was trying to get rid of the gold. <laughs> and out came the calf. <laughs> wasn't my fault. I was really trying to go the other direction. And religion, number four, covers up the facts. Religion covers up the facts. It's a good story, Aaron, but it's a big, fat lie. And we learn something else here about the complicity of Aaron. Verse 25 says, When Moses saw that the people were out of control, for Aaron had let them get out of control to be a derision among their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp. Now hang on a second. That's a very nice translation of what happened. When Moses saw that the people were out of control. The word there for out of control means literally naked. Aaron's defending himself. Moses looks out, of the, out over the people and what does he see? The Bible says he saw that they were naked. Why are they naked? What are you doing, Aaron? What's going on here? What have you really led the people to do? The word is para. It means naked. It also means exposed. Aaron was not innocent gang. He was orchestrated. He was the orchestra leader. He was the band director. Go and tap, dance around. You're there. More from here. Let's do it together. This is what Aaron was doing. And the people were naked or exposed in their shame. Were they really? I mean, were they really naked, Rick? Absolutely. Hebrews 4.13 says there's no creature hidden from his sight but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. What religion misunderstands and has all the way from the very beginning when Adam and Eve tested out religion is that you cannot cover up the facts. Adam and Eve went immediately for the fig leaf. Some of you remember this. The fig leaf is a scratchy, uncomfortable leaf. Bad choice of clothing for Adam and Eve. But they grabbed what they could to cover up their sin, to hide the facts, thinking, hey, maybe God will see me in the fig leaf, which I've never worn before in my life, and suddenly think, I'm, you know, okay, not see the fact that I'm naked. God already knew. God knew they were naked long before, long before Adam and Eve did. But they were trying, as religion does, to cover up the facts. Religion misunderstands that. 
But by the way, as we try, if we go this direction to cover up the facts, to keep from being exposed, guess what? The world sees it too. The world knows of the hypocrisy as well. It's clear to everybody in the world. When someone's walking around trying to look all religious and all together, everyone else looks at the person and says, (laughs) nice try. Because if you're anything like me, I know what's really going on inside. Which is why that word hypocrisy is thrown out so much when people talk about church and Christians. They're just hypocrites. They're just trying to look good. They're just covering up the reality. Okay? Can we all just agree to the reality here? We are sinners saved by a merciful, loving God. There's nothing good in me except what God has put there. And left to my own device, I'm going to mess it up. But thanks God. Thanks be to God for His, for His grace. Well, verse 26, Moses stood at the gate of the camp and he said, Whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And watch this, all the sons of Levi gathered together to him. And he said, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Every man of you put his sword upon his thigh and go back and forth from the gate to the gate in the camp and kill every man his brother and every man his friend and every man his neighbor. The Bible tells us Levi did as Moses had instructed. Why Levi? Why all of a sudden does Levi pop up as, as the, the servants of the Lord here? Well, Levi is the tribe that's going to be the high priest, right? Yeah, but they didn't know that yet. As a matter of fact, up to this point, and I'm pretty convinced of this, the whole priesthood was supposed to be for the firstborn of all Israel, not just for one tribe. So why did it come to one tribe? Well, Levi has an interesting background, doesn't he? You may remember a story. It's back in Genesis 24. Levi and Simeon, two of the sons of Israel, had a sister named Dinah who was raped by a man named Shechem. And after this rape, they went to Shechem, who, who begged them, in apology, I'm so sorry, but I just love your sister and I, I, I burn for her. Can, can I marry her? Simeon and Levi said, sure, but you've got you to gotta do our custom. You've got to be circumcised, you and all your brothers and family, and in fact, your whole town. In fact, if you'll be circumcised like us, then we'll intermarry. You can marry Dinah and, and our other sisters, and we'll marry your sisters and daughters as well. And the men of Shechem thought this sounded like a good idea. I don't know why. Must have been some awfully good-looking women in the Israel family, you know. So they all get circumcised. And Simeon and Levi, on the day of the circumcision, show up while the men are weak, while they're in pain, and they slaughter everyone in the city. Brutal. Zealous. For their sister Dinah. And now the same people have borne a curse. Jacob said to them in Genesis 49 verse 5, Let not my soul enter into their counsel. Let not my glory be united with their assembly, because in anger they slew men. And for 400 years the tribe of Levi had to deal with that. What their father had done. Their blessing from Jacob was that they were not even to enter into his counsel. He was so ashamed of them. But here Levi has a chance to make a difference. Here now Levi is zealous once again. And brutally so. But their zealousness is now no longer for the sin of the flesh. It is for the fear of the Lord. They now join Moses in this fear. And it's amazing because in Deuteronomy chapter 33, Moses re-blesses all of the sons of Israel. And listen to what he says about Levi. Levi said of his father and his mother, I did not consider them. He did not acknowledge his brothers, nor did he regard his own sons. 
For they observed your word and kept your covenant. They shall teach your ordinances to Jacob and your law to Israel. They shall put incense before you and hold burnt offerings on your altar. Why? Because they were willing to kill even sons, neighbors, friends, family members. Because they loved the Lord so very much. Their passion for God was amazing. You know what Jesus said? Some stunning words. You can look this up. It's in the book of Luke. He said, No one can come to me unless they hate father, mother, sister, or brother. Well, that's got to be a mistranslation, right, Rick? No, it's not. The word is missio in the Greek. Hate. Jesus said, Unless you are hating family, friends, neighbors, you can't really love me. What in the world does that mean? It means that by contrast, Jesus wants your love to be so passionate that even that which you love the most in the world, by contrast, can't even compare. Even that looks like hate. The love I feel for my children, for my wife, Jesus would say, I want an intimate love relationship with you that is so passionate, so deep, that even as much as you love her, Rick, there's no comparison. This is what he's calling us to. That's relationship, not religion. Relationship. I need to ask you a question here, and it may be a tough question in your family situation, in your life, with friends, family, neighbors. Are you willing to strap on the sword of truth and speak what needs to be spoken in love, even if it means it may hurt someone around you? Even if that word of truth may sting? Even if it's difficult to hear? You know, we waffle so much with friends and family when it comes to God's Word. For fear that, oh, I'm, I'm going to alienate them. I'm going to drive them away. They're never going to want to talk to me again. Well, maybe you should just hand them the Word. Let God's Word do what it does. It is the sharp, two-edged sword, Hebrews 4.12 tells us. It's piercing as far as division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow. And it's able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. But gang, we need to understand something. There is something that is harsher. It's a more permanent reality even than the sword. It's the reality of eternity. And the law, religion, always brings eternal death. And we have people, don't we, that we know and love who right now, that's what they're facing. Don't be afraid to bring them the sword. Have the passion that Levi had, the zealousness that he had for the Lord. For on that day, the Bible tells us, verse 28, it tells us the sons of Levi did as Moses instructed and about 3,000 men of the people fell that day. But check it out. On the first day, the inauguration day of the church, Acts chapter 2 tells us 3,000 people were saved by the work of the Holy Spirit. The law brings death, but the Spirit brings life to those who will believe. And I ask you, what would you rather have? Religion that brings death or relationship that brings life? Verse 29, Moses said, Dedicate yourselves today to the Lord for every man who has been against his son and against his brother in order that he may bestow a blessing upon you today. And on the next day, Moses said to the people, You yourselves have committed a great sin. And now I am going up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sins. I share this on Wednesday night. You need to hear this though. In Jesus Christ we have better than atonement. We have something greater than atonement. Did you know the word atonement is not a New Testament word? 
It's not used in the New Testament. It's replaced by words like redemption or justification. Because atonement is a word that means covering. Moses says, and he loves the people, he says, I'm going to go up and I'm going to see if I can cover your sins. I'm going to go back before the Lord and see what I can do to cover your sins. But Jesus' blood doesn't just cover our sins. It washes away our sins. I'm not sitting here with sin underneath the covering of Christ, afraid that maybe one's going to pop out. Oh no, the Lord saw that one. Bring it back, bring it back. Get it under the cover. I am not just covered by Jesus. I am atoned, not just atoned, I am justified by Him. I am saved. I am cleansed. I am purified by the one-time complete work of Jesus on the cross. We have better than atonement. Titus chapter 3 verse 4. There are three verses here. Listen closely to this though. When the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us. Not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So that, being justified by His grace, we will be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. I don't just have atonement, I have justification. Verse 31, he goes on and the Bible tells us, Moses returned to the Lord and he said, Alas, this people has committed a great sin and they have made a God of gold for themselves. But now, if you will, forgive their sin. Watch this. If not, please, blot me out from your book which you have written. Let me tell you something about relationship instead of religion. Relationship seeks forgiveness at any cost. Any cost. This is absolutely stunning. Moses goes before God and says, Listen, if you're not going to save them, don't save me. If you're going to blot them out of the book of life, blot me out. If you're going to destroy them, destroy me with them. Talk about putting your whole eternity on the line. This is what Moses did. And you know what? Someone else had a heart like that. Paul did. Paul said in Romans 9.3, I wish I myself were accursed, separated from Christ, for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Do you love people that much? Do you love friends and family? At the same time that you're handing them the sword, that you may be giving a verse that's difficult for them, or hard for them to hear, are you loving them so much that you would say to God, if you don't save them, don't save me? That's what Moses said. That's a deep love for his people. That's what Paul said. If I could, by being accursed, save this people, I would do it. That's what Jesus did. He didn't just speak the words. He proved the words. John 15.3 Greater love has no one than this that one lay down his life for his friends. This is relationship over religion. Religion is always deeds focused. Always deeds focused. Religion always says, I know what you did to me. I remember what you did to me. I have kept an accounting of what you did to me. I know your deeds. And relationship. Relationship seeks to restore to redeem, to reclaim relationship again. There is such a vast difference between these two. And you need to understand this morning, God is calling you to relationship, not religion, not belief system, but intimacy. So how does God respond? Verse 33, the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot him out of my book. But, go now, lead the people 
where I tell you, or where I told you, behold, my angel shall go before you. Who is this angel? Gang, this is none other than Jesus Christ. And we're going to talk about that next week. My angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I punish, I will punish them for their sin. And then the Lord smote the people because of what they did with the calf that Aaron had made. A couple last things and I'll let you out of here today. God says... On the day when I punish, I will punish them for their sins. But I want you to hear this carefully. The literal translation of that sentence, God says these words. He says, on the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. On the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. And I cannot help but wonder if God is looking ahead. If God is speaking of a day, the Bible calls it the day of Jacob's trouble. Jesus called it the great tribulation which is about to come upon the whole world. I need you to understand that there is tremendous confusion about Judgment Day in our world. The movie War of the Worlds is out now and it's just another Judgment Day type movie where the whole world is attacked and comes under you know, some severe trauma, some trial, some Armageddon. And people tend to think that Judgment Day is this this event that's going to happen and all of us are going through it and it doesn't matter who you are or what you've done, you're going to have to stand there. You're going to be in that long line. And at the very front of the line, way up there, we're going to see the Lord on the throne and one by one people are either going to be walking into heaven or headed down to hell and we're going to be going, oh, I hope I make it. I hope I'm there. I don't want to be judged. Man, I hate the idea of judgment. And well, we should... But you need to understand this morning that Jesus took your judgment if you will trust Him. Judgment happened on the cross of Jesus Christ. The wrath need not be for you. God is going to visit. And He is going to punish for sin in a way the world has never seen. Unparalleled judgment will come on this world. The Bible's clear about it. But listen to these words, 1 Thessalonians 1.10, Jesus rescues us from the wrath to come. 1 Thessalonians 5.9, God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. And if you want to know what the greatest difference is between religion and relationship, it's all in the book. What book? The book of life. There are two kinds of books mentioned in the Bible, and we'll finish on this. Revelation chapter 20, verse 12, talks about a day when the books are opened. He says, I I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. Trust me, you do not want your name in the set. You see, the Bible talks about a set of books, and it talks about a book. The book of life, and a set of books that you could call the books of deeds. God keeps keeps track two ways. One is the book of life. If you come to Jesus Christ, if you give your life to Him, you trust Him, have faith in Him, you get baptized into Him, you live for Him, just give your life over to Him in relationship, guess where your name is? Book of life. But if you want to be judged according to your deeds... If you want to live in religion, if belief system is what it's about for you, you're going to be in the book of deeds. And the Bible tells us there is a day coming when God will open up the book of deeds for those who choose it, those who want it. Man, if I'm in the book of life, this is not a judgment for me. Maybe that's another study for another time. But if I'm in the book of life, my judgment happened at the cross. It's a past tense thing. It is a done deal. I am saved in Jesus. If I'm in the book of deeds, 
the day is coming when God's going to open up those books and say, okay, you, you, want, you want to show me what a good person you are? Let's check it out. Let's read. Let's see. Well, that was good. That, oh, do you remember this? Do you remember doing this? What about this over here? Uh-oh. What about that? Trust me, you do not want to be judged by the book of deeds. You want to be in the book of life. You might say, well, hey, I've never been religious. I'm not a religious person. Listen to this clearly. If you are hoping that you are good enough, you are religious. That's probably the greatest definition of religion. Someone who's living hoping they're good enough. A good person is the most religious you can get because a good person is relying on their deeds to get in. That's religion. Relationship is saying, I am relying on the mercy of a loving God. I am relying on the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. I am relying on the blood that was shed, the punishment that was taken, my punishment that was taken by Him. That's what I'm relying on. I am relying on relationship. Jesus said last verse, Matthew 7, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles, deed, deed, deed? Didn't we do all these great things? And what does he say? I will declare to them, I never knew you. I never knew you. Can I just get a show of hands? How many people would like to spend eternity with the Lord? That's pretty good. The way to do it is to know Him. 